Please turn with me in Scripture to Matthew chapter 1. And while we're doing so, let me just explain what I, I said in brief by way of, um, of reading from the Westminster Directory for Public Worship this morning, which was to say that it, it was the opinion of the divines that um, chapters from both the Old and the New Testament uh, would be read at every church service. And we know that it's not an inspired word of God to us, but we think it is a faithful and, and wise advice uh, to the church of all times. And, and therefore, as we ever seek to amend our, and reform our practices in accordance with the word of God, uh, so we are introducing a, a, a second reading. So the first reading will be on the opposite testament of what's going to be preached at that service. So this first one, we're beginning in Matthew, as this morning we began in Genesis. We begin in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinebed. And Abinebed begot Nation, and Nation begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amnon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheatil, and Sheatil begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abud, and Abud begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zaduk, and Zaduk begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are fourteen generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took him his, to his wife. Took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. 
and he called his name Jesus. May God add his blessing to that reading of the word. Please turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah, one of the final prophets in the word of God. Uh, Just before you get to the New Testament, there's Malachi, and before that, there's Zechariah. I'll be reading the first chapter. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is in the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Idu, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy, My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched over all Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. And I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? So he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? So he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah, to scatter it. May God add his blessing to that reading of his own an errant word. Well, we come to begin a new series, a series uh, on the book of Zechariah. 
And there are many connections to various other aspects of things that we've had in the ministry of the church. God's providence, of course, we're reminded um, and the reading from Matthew that this was epochal for the nation of Israel. This was one of the great divisions of time for them before and after the exile. And this is the time after the exile, the Babylonian exile, in which after so long a time that the Lord had shown forbearance and patience with them, so long that he had been warning them, he'd been sending, he, he speaks of himself rising up early and sending his prophets, his servant of prophets, to speak to the people, to warn them, to get them to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their rebellion and from following other gods. But eventually, when his very long patience eventually runs out, he does all that he said he was going to do. He carries out his curses, his warnings, his judgments, and he sins the nation of Judah into exile. As with the, you know, that the, the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, that had already happened to them. It was supposed to be a warning for Judah that they wouldn't fall the same way. They, and the uh, Assyrian um, destruction and captivity, but they didn't listen to those things, and Babylon carried them into exile. Now, a couple of things um, to note uh, in various ways. First of all, we understand that this is many of these things were uh, straight historical discourses mixed with prophetic visions, and in that way, it's much like the mode that um, Revelation was written um, by by John the Apostle. And as you remember, we had many times, if you think back to the series in Revelation, we had many times of which we had to refer back to uh, the book of Zechariah for various things. We're going to see even in this chapter uh, the vision of the horses, for instance, something that comes up again in Revelation, that God uses these things. And as we use Zechariah to help us to understand Revelation, of course, we can use Revelation to help us to understand Zechariah. And then historically, just a couple of things to note that Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries. And as we go through this, it might be useful also for you to read the very brief book of Haggai, only two chapters. Uh, These things happen at the very same time. And one of the things that you get um, there are the two main characters uh, historically to be found in Zechariah in the very first part of Haggai. It says this, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time of the Lord's house that should be built. And carrying on, it is, of course, a rebuke and a call that the Lord's house, the temple, should be rebuilt. And that's the context. That's the situation. The captives have returned uh, from from exile, they're there in this land. The temple needs to be rebuilt, and God is calling on the governor, whose name is Zerubbabel, and Joshua, who is the high priest, to do this work. But really, spiritually and theologically, I bet I think the best way to set the scene is simply to recall you to one of the last portions in our very previous series in the book of Joshua. Uh, you recall these words in Joshua twenty three fourteen. And you know in all your heart and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. 
Therefore it shall come to pass, that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God has promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things, until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he had given you. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago, and in these centuries since, and that is precisely what happened. They turned away from the Lord in their hearts, and increasingly they turned away from the Lord in their words, and then also in their deeds, and first in very uh, covert sort of ways, and then increasingly more overt ways, as the shrines and temples of false gods were set up in the land, and which their hearts were increasingly hardened to the call of the word of God. And they refused to listen, they refused to repent, and the Lord did exactly what he said he would do. And Joshua's point was that. It was not simply, and it certainly was that, a monument, a reminder that the, to the people that God has carried all, all these good things. He said he was going to give you this land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and he did that. You're in it. But also to say, and just like he did that, just like he made good on that promise, it's so going to happen if you turn away from the Lord. And that is precisely where we are now. That sets the scene then for where we are in, in Zechariah. Because they have been exiled and they've been recently recalled. And the question is, what are they going to do now? Well, the subject of this first prophecy given to Zechariah by God is very simple. It is the subject of our sermon, return to me. That is the call, return to me. We have just three, I would say, fairly brief points. First, do not be like your fathers. Second, return to me. And third, I will return to you. Do not be like your fathers. Return to me and I will return to you. So our first point has to do with the Lord's command, his, his advice to the people, his authoritative advice, do not be like your fathers. And as a preliminary comment, I just want to draw your attention to verse 2 where it says, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. And again, that correlates precisely with what was in Joshua 23 where it said that um, as the Lord has done these good things, as he has worked with you in grace, so also if you turn away, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly. And I only say this because as with every, sadly, every other generation, this, the church today is suffering from a tendency not to talk about the wrath of God. And we are coming up with all sorts of clever ways to talk about sin in ways that have nothing to do with God. Um, sin just causes you problems in this life. The problem with your sin, the problem with your adultery, your lying, all the rest of it, is because you're causing problems. Um, and that's what happens. Now, God has nothing to do with it. He's, he's off to the side, but you kind of have bad karma in this world because of what you've done. And likewise, we come up with ways to talk about hell that have nothing to do with the wrath of God. We say this is something that you choose for yourself. We say it's like the eternal skid row of the universe where you're like a drug addict living in the consequences of your own poor choices and, and there you kind of um, psychologically torment yourself in an ongoing circle of self-destruction and God has nothing to do with it. 
And we find ways instantly to talk about the atonement that has nothing to do with the wrath of God. Because if that's what hell is like, if hell is something you do for yourself, if hell is something just an inevitable, cosmic sort of outcome of, of your bad decisions, your, your, your own sin working upon you, then that must be what Christ endured. It probably didn't have to do with Christ suffering the wrath of a holy God for our sins. There was something else that he endured. Maybe he identified with us. He took upon himself these negative consequences. People railed their insults on them and so forth, rather than God pouring out his wrath. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we must be comfortable talking about the anger and wrath of God. Apart from that, we have no cross. Apart from that, we have no Christianity. Any God that you have in your mind that is not capable of being angry at people is not the real God. He is an idol. He is precisely the kind of idol of which the prophets told the people to turn away from. It's not the real God. Now, thankfully, we can talk, a lot about, uh, we can talk about many other things, and we can talk about his love and his mercy and his grace, but it is all predicated. We as sinners, we who live in a fallen world, we who are descendants of, of Adam, we can't begin to talk about those things until we say he is a holy God, he is a just God who holds people accountable, and he most certainly is capable of anger against sin and against sinners. He is wrathful, and he will certainly carry out his threatenings. And therefore, when I speak from this pulpit and I say that the Lord will surely judge sinners, those who do not turn in faith to Christ and turn from their sins, you need to understand that his threatenings come true. Well, that was in preface to this, this rebuke from the Lord, which is more fully stated in verse 4. It says, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not heed, did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Now I should say, it is the natural tendency. I think it is the way that God has created people that good sons, more often than not, should follow in the footsteps of their fathers in various ways. Normally, that's the case, and that's not only just part of God's design, it is in various ways and in various places affirmed in Scripture that this is right, that uh, the good sons should follow in the paths of their good fathers. They should follow the example, and ordinarily. Now, there are many, 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 uh, many exceptions to this. We understand that. Because of sin on both the part of the father and a part of the son, we know that. But generally speaking, that is the approved pattern for which sons should do. But what if your father was a rebel against the living God? What if your father was hardened against the gospel? What if your father did not regard the word of God at all? The question is, what should you do? And the answer is very clear. Here is an exception to the general rule of imitating your father, of following his advice and, and living up to what he did. You should turn away from that bad example. You should not be like your father in this case. And that's the situation here. The prophets had come to him and said, turn from your evil ways and evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me. And you see then something of what we spoke this morning of those who hear the word of God. That's not the same as actually heeding what they at least listen to it. And then further, there are those who the word sinks in and they actually obey it. But neither of these things were the case for those people. And towards the end, as you, you read, for instance, the prophet Jeremiah, they wouldn't even listen to the prophet anymore. They didn't pay him any heed whatsoever. That was the situation of the fathers. 
And these sons, that next generation, should not imitate that example at all. They should turn away from it. Do not be like your fathers. Now, I'd say, incidentally, it didn't have to be that way for the fathers. You know, from time to time, there were good kings who feared the Lord and regarded the voice of the prophets. I would say also the amazing example of the prophet uh, Jonah preaching to the Ninevites. Remember that? How unlikely was that? This, uh, this unwilling prophet washing up on the shore of this wicked, wicked kingdom of Nineveh and preaching. It was not, you know, people say, how can speaking, uh, talking about the law and talking about the wrath of God ever bring evangelical results? I, I guess it worked for him. All he said was, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It was a message of wrath and judgment. It was a message of warning. And what happened? King on down repented in sackcloth and ashes. So we know it was possible in the providence of God that they, they could have and should have listened, even as the Ninevites did. But unfortunately, they didn't. And to bring that home, the Lord asked the question in verse 5, Your fathers, where are they? That's a good question, isn't it? Because you know is one of the advantages that sons have is that they're able to look at the outcome of their father's decisions. And every son here should do that precisely. You should look very carefully at the outcome of your father's decisions and see where these things have landed him, whether good or bad. And of course, in time, and we can't see everything with regard to eternity, but we can trust the word of God with regard to these outcomes in eternity as well. And the question is, what did this get, the fathers? Well, they're not around, are they? They're the ones that the Babylonians came and, and killed. They're the ones that the Babylonians came and took into captivity, just as the Lord had said. And we ought to likewise take warning from the bad decisions and the bad outcomes of our father's decisions. But interestingly, those who did return, of course, not all of them were killed. The Babylonians were actually slightly in the providence of God in dealing with the nation of Judah, were actually slightly more humane than the Assyrians. And so a good number of them certainly did remain to return. And this was the testimony that they had. So I read again from verse 6. Yet surely my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And we can be thankful for that. Because every once in a while, fathers themselves learn from their mistakes. And they listened, finally. And they agreed with the Lord of God and said, Lord, you are just. And you acted rightly in our exile and carrying out the threats that you've given against us. And you are right in doing in accordance with our works. And likewise, sons, if, you're, if your fathers have come to such a point, if they recognize the error of their ways, if they repent from things and they let you know, then you should listen to that particularly. Well, the first point was do not be like your fathers. And we make a general principle of that. If they have done these wicked things and sinful things, we should not follow them. Sadly, sometimes I think that sons, unfortunately, um, are equally likely to follow their father's example in good and bad things. But the word of the Lord to us is that we should follow them in the, the good things, and we should not follow their example in the bad. And secondly, the command is to return to me. The invitation is to return to me. 
And verse 3, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And what can I say with that? That was the theme of so much of the prophets. We have to understand this was not just a, a, a once situation in which the Lord happened to say that. He, he said that actually on many occasions. Just to build the picture slightly, I'll, I'll read a couple of them. In Jeremiah 4.1, it says, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth and judgment and in righteousness. The nation shall bless themselves in him and in him they shall glory. That happened, of course, before the exile. If you return to me, I will return to you. Or Malachi 3.7, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? And there was a question of the specifics. Sadly, one of the problems with sin is very, sometimes it's not immediately apparent to us um, the nature of our sin, and the Lord has to help us through his word and spirit. But the point is that the Lord has issued this, this invitation. He's done it more than once, and I find it amazing. I don't know if you do. I find it amazing that such an invitation should ever be offered to such a sinful people. How many times did they offend God? Look at the history. Read through those historical books. It is crazy. It is, it is almost the opposite of what you would expect of a nation's history. You know, if you read a patriotic history of the United States and you read of all the glorious things that America has done, if you read not a current history of, of Britain, but maybe one written in the, in the late Victorian times, equally you will find uh, one extremely um, proud of, of all the nation's accomplishments and, and, very sh and, and not very long on the mistakes and the sins. But the Old Testament history, the historical books are, are the opposite of those things. It is sin and rebellion after sin and rebellion. And just when you think that they might have finally learned their lesson, then the next king comes along and he builds the altar to Baal and he makes the golden calves and on and on and on and he slays the prophets. He doesn't listen. He goes his own way. He makes alliances with pagan foreign kings, turns his back on the word of God and the cycle continues on and on. And the question is the words of, of Joshua 23 are ringing in your mind as you're reading the Old Testament. You're wondering, when is it going to come? Is this one going to be the last? When is it going to come to an end? And the Lord is going to run out of patience. And just when you think they're, that they're, it's impossible, it carries on and on and on. And finally, when it seems to you, and no doubt to the Lord himself, that to allow it to carry on anymore would, would thoroughly dishonor the Lord, then he finally brings judgment on the people. And then even after that, he says, return to me. And I will return to you. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, consider, by the way, again, do, please, do not imagine that God is like some sort of machine. He is not like the God of the deist. He is not a machine. He is a personal God. And I want you to, to consider these moving words of Ezekiel 6, 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. And their eyes which play the harlot after the idols. Do you get that? The Lord is speaking of himself. I was crushed by their adulterous heart. Yes, if you are among the people of God, if you are in covenant with him, you are capable 
of not only displeasing the Lord God, don't listen to those who say that God is as pleased with you when you're deep in sin as in when you're here in church is a lie. And you are capable even of breaking his heart, grieving the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. If you're capable of grieving the Spirit, you're capable of grieving God. And that's what they've done. And that's what they've done. And the, and the question is, how can such an invitation be issued to such an unworthy and sinful people? And the answer is the answer that has no human logic. It is the answer of God's grace. It is the answer of God's love for his own people. Sovereign, adopting love, whereby for no reason he in his own sovereign wisdom, that's the reason, he puts his love upon a certain people. Not because they were greater than other people, not because they were wiser, not because they were better than any other people, but simply because he chose to put his love on them. And then out of his grace, he carries out these gracious covenant promises given to this, well, this loser Abraham. How else can you call him? He was an example of faith, wasn't he? He was an example of grace. But he was no great man in and of himself. But if you're his child, and if you call on the Lord, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you are his child. And thankfully, you, you have that in your back pocket. You have these covenant promises you belong to him. You're in. A reminder of that, uh, I guess, to some small extent. At long last, when we return to this country, having now these indefinite leave-to-remain cards, we do not have to get grilled, and we're not in, in, in some permanent uh, anxiety because we had the card that says we can come and go as we please. Well, far, far more so are the covenant promises that are to the children of Abraham, those who are part of his gracious covenant from one generation to the next. And that God will get, for his own glory, because he is so gracious, because he has made these promises, he issues the, the invitation to return. And then the reciprocal, our third and final point, and I will return to you. Verse 3, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, that title is not without its significance you know that whenever the, the Bible speaks and uses these, these titles of God, these attributes of God with great care and inspired and inerrant scripture, not one word is amiss. It's not a throwaway comment. Any, any one of God's titles, any one of his, his attributes could have been used, but here is the one. He's the Lord of hosts. That means he is the one who is the commander of this great army of heaven. He's the one in charge of this invincible force. And we should think, even in the midst of God being gracious, we're reminded that he is no pushover. The reality is, of course, in his infinite might, he is able both to carry out all of his threatenings, he's also more than capable of protecting his people from anything that threatens on earth whatsoever. He is the Lord of hosts. And what he's saying, what he's offering, what he's saying is that if you simply return to me, if you repent, I will return to you. And, of course, the obvious question is, did the Lord leave his people? And we have to say that in some sense, yes, and in some sense, no. God is always here. He is omnipresent. There is nowhere, like David in the psalm, he, there's where can I go to hide from your presence? Where can I go to get away from your presence? Even if I go to hell, you are there. A reminder that hell is not the absence of the Lord. Well, in one, so in that sense, no. But in another sense, yes. In Ezekiel ten eighteen. 
It says this, And the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. Right? And the, the, this is the, what, what happened over time. When the tabernacle was instituted, we saw the, the presence of the Shekinah glory of the Lord resting on the tabernacle. As, we, as it went from place to place, the, 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 um, the fire by day and the smoke by night, there was the presence of the Lord. And then you remember what happened when the temple was dedicated, the temple of Solomon. Remember? The glory of the Lord filled the place. And they couldn't even carry on for a moment because of the glory of the Lord. The Shekinah glory came and rested on there. Remained there until what we think that this verse teaches us in Ezekiel. And for a time, the glory, the presence of the Lord did depart from Jerusalem. And what he says is that he will return. And there is certainly this sense, of course, if nothing else, there is certainly the sense that the Lord had departed from them in the favorable sense, in the sense that he no longer protected them and their land, but allowed them to be handed over to the Babylonians. And this is the crucial issue. It's, will the Lord return to them? Will he do that? Because it's just like what it was in, you know, with Moses. The, the issue that we're con- constantly asking, and Moses and Joshua were saying, are you going to come with me? Will you come with me? Moses in Exodus thirty-three fifteen. If your presence does not go with us, don't bring us up from here because we know it's all without meaning. And brothers and sisters, that is our situation, isn't it? If the presence of the Lord does not go with us, then it's all for naught. If the Lord is not with us, if the Lord is not for us, it does not matter what we do or where we go. If he is not with us and for us, then it is all for naught. But if he is, if he is, And we have all that we need. And the wonderful promise to those who are, uh, have have turned away from the Lord, to those who are now penitent sinners, is that I will return to you. You know, in some sense, this is a restatement of the gospel message, isn't it? You repent from your sins, and you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you say, Lord, forgive me, Lord, receive me into your kingdom. It's what was stated is in one way, then he indeed, his promise to us, if that is done in sincerity, he says that he will be our God. He says that indeed we will be in his kingdom. He will return to us. Now some just brief applications. The first is that this is the word of the Lord. That's the very first verse. It says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet. And, you know, that, that's, that's the preface. That, that is the, the, the foundation for everything else. It is the word of the Lord that came to him. And I guess I would have in other days have been tempted to assume that as good evangelicals, we all believe in the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, the good, right doctrine of of, of scripture, but that's just not the case. Like every other doctrine, it cannot simply be assumed. And I am going to learn from my lesson. And I'm not going to simply assume it, but I'm going to preach that whenever I get a chance. And that this was the word of the Lord. He spoke to this prophet. None of those words were in error. None of them were by accident. Each and every one of them were precisely chosen. It's the verbal inerrancy, the verbal inspiration, not merely that a basic general good idea was given. And not merely just that a, a sort of assistance was given and an adoption of ancient Near East customs and ancient Near East myths. 
Now, that's not inspiration. That's what sometimes people are calling inspiration. But, of course, again, that's a false teaching. That's a lie. It's not true. The very word of God came to this prophet, and those words are the words that we have recorded for us in Scripture. And so it is with every last word of Scripture. It is precisely the words which he spoke to the prophets and to the apostles who recorded them for us. And he is more than capable of doing that. He spoke the world into existence by the word of his power. He is able to give us his word, and he certainly does. Secondly, the obvious application of this is for us to repent. The obvious application is for us to learn the lesson from history. And the great thing about Scripture is that we get to live vicariously in the lives of these other people. We get to learn the lesson of Israel. We weren't back there. Praise God, we weren't. Instead, we get to learn from the few things that they were good examples in and the many things that they were poor examples in. And we need to think of ourselves in that situation. We need to think how we would be if we had just returned from exile. Would we seek the Lord with our whole heart? Would we have any taste? Would we have any gusto for sin? No way. We'd say, this is what has destroyed us. We have no desire for these things. We have no desire to be worldly. We have no desire to be like the nations around us. We don't want to imitate them. We want to run from those things. We ought to learn to listen from history. And for most of us, we don't even need to go that far. We don't even need to do that because we have our own life history from which we can learn from. And sadly, brothers and sisters... I speak as one who is with you, a sheep along with you, as a sheep first and the shepherd second. And it is amazing to me how brief our memories seem to be. The lessons that we think that we've learned once and for all, it seems like even a year later, sometimes a month later, we're right back to where we were. The Lord is merciful and kind and he is long-suffering and he is giving us these things that we might truly repent. And we ought to learn from our mistakes. I'm sometimes, sometimes impatient with my own children and saying, why don't you learn from your mistake? This thing you've been rebuked for, this thing that you've been disciplined for, why don't you learn from it? Here you are doing the very same thing. And yet I know I'm guilty of these things myself. Let us truly learn our lesson. Let us repent and turn away from sin. Can anyone here testify to the good fruit of sin? Can any one of us say, well, actually, I've been harboring this sin for years, and it's, it's, it's worked great for me. Anybody say that? Hardly. It's quite the opposite. And I bet if we were honest, we could share with all, all of us, we could add our rebukes, don't do that. We could be as fathers to one another. We could be as fathers and and the rest of us could be as sons. And look, don't do it. We need to repent. And the wonderful thing is, the wonderful thing is that he returns to us. The Lord is not very far away from us. And sometimes that's the lie of Satan. Sometimes that is what is keeping us from repenting. Because the lie of Satan is that he will not receive us. The lie of Satan is you've gone too far. And you've done this before. You're out of chances. Was Israel out of chances? Didn't seem like they ever were. Even, even after the exile, this time of being away from the Lord, yet he received them again. Don't listen to that. He will receive us. That is his gracious promise to us. Now, from what specifically? I'm, no, I'm not a prophet. 
I don't know your sins, you do. But they are there. And uh, worse than that, we are tempted not to deal with them. The fact that there is sin in a unbeliever's life, that is what, just what the Word says. It says in First John, if we say we have no sin, we make him to be a liar. There is sin. But the temptation not to deal with the sin, sort of like what we were talking this morning, to let that weed grow another day, that temptation is all too real. And that is what I speak tonight about. That we need to repent. We need to do that work of owning up and facing up to these things and turning away from them. The Lord says, repent, return, and he will return to us. That's the promise. And thirdly and finally, for some of you, the word is don't be like your father. Because for some of us, the very same thing could be said of what was said of Israel, that we should not be like our fathers. Because not all of us come from believing families. Not all of us come from fathers who taught us the word of God and led us in the right paths of righteousness and brought us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Some of us come from fathers who would not listen to the word of God. Some of us, our fathers, we rebelled against God. And we need to not be like them. You know, the way, again, it's supposed to work is a thousand-generation covenant, one generation handing over the true faith to the next. But for some of us, that's just not the case. And we need to go in the other direction. Now, thankfully, I should say that there are many, many examples among us of those who should be, in fact, just like their fathers and imitate them. And maybe the word for you is to do that. The Lord gave you a good father, and you should follow his example even closer than maybe what you're doing. But for others, we need to turn in the opposite direction. The Lord summons us to follow him, and sometimes, indeed, that requires us to leave our father and mother in order that we might follow him. And may the Lord give us grace to indeed return to the living God from wherever we have come from. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that the word of God came to Zechariah. We're thankful, Lord, that you spoke in your graciousness. Lord, we know as long as you speak to us, there is hope. There is yet an opportunity to repent. For those who have not yet done so at all, to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And Lord, for your people, there is an opportunity to repent and, Lord, to return to you in our hearts in the ways in which we have strayed. We are thankful that Christ is the good shepherd and that he is able to keep his own sheep and how we pray that he would do so. That through your word that they would be gathered and through your word that they would be kept safe and close by. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us the wisdom, the discernment, and the will to examine ourselves and to repent of all known sin. And how we pray, Lord, that we would find the promise to be true of us, as was true of your people throughout countless generations before us. That as we seek to return, Lord, we find that you are all the more willing to receive us and return to us. How we pray, Lord, that we would go forward with your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.